Greetings. This is Volts for October 27th, 2021. Volts podcast, Amy Westervelt on disinformation and propaganda. I'm your host, David Roberts. In recent years, there's been a lot of talk about America's polluted information environment, the ubiquity of disinformation driven by social media and fake news. What is less discussed is that purposefully crafted disinformation designed to shape public opinion to the benefit of the wealthy and powerful is nothing new. In fact, it's almost as old as the country itself. Amy Westervelt, a longtime award-winning environmental journalist, has spent her career uncovering disinformation and exposing the methods of those who generate and spread it. She's perhaps best known as the host of Drilled, a true crime podcast about climate change that has spent six seasons so far exposing the propaganda generated and spread by the fossil fuel industry. And she's editor-in-chief of the Drilled News site. She's also the founder of Critical Frequency, a woman-run podcast network, as well as the co-host of the climate podcast Hot Take with climate essayist Mary Heglar. It is currently on hiatus, returning next year. She's also the co-host or producer of several other podcasts, including Seen on Radio and Crooked Media's This Land, and the author of Forget Having It All, a 2018 book on the challenges of motherhood in the U.S. Now, Westervelt has a new project, launching today, Rigged. The foundation of the site is a treasure trove of original documents, some dating back more than a century, about the founding and growth of the modern public relations industry and its development of tools of mass persuasion. Atop that database is a series of pieces charting the landscape, offering a glossary of disinformation techniques, profiles of the anti-heroes of the business, and stories on the various inglorious chapters in disinformation history, from chemicals to railroads to tobacco to fossil fuels. It is equal parts fascinating and horrifying. Fascinating that the tools of disinformation are so well and publicly documented. Horrifying that they are still working so effectively. Here's just one fun fact. Edward Bernays, one of the pioneers of early 20th century opinion shaping, coined the term public relations because the Germans, he said, had, quote, given the word propaganda a bad name. You can also thank Bernays, Sigmund Freud's nephew, for men wearing wristwatches, women smoking, and bacon being a standard part of American breakfast. These stories are wild. I've been admiring Westervelt's work from afar for years, so I was psyched to talk to her about Rigged, the long history of disinformation, the many ways the fossil fuel industry has shaped public opinion, and why the U.S. left seems so incapable of dealing effectively with disinformation to this day. Amy Westervelt, welcome to Volts. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad to have you on. Glad you could squeeze me in uh, between all your dozens, <laughs> your dozens of projects. <laughs> Let's start with the newest one, uh, Rigged, which debuts today. Uh, listeners, go go check it out. Tell me a little bit about Rigged, how you came about to doing this, why you're doing it, and yeah. what what you would like it to to accomplish. 
a little over a year ago now, I did a season of my other podcast, Drilled, kind of looking at the the history of fossil fuel propaganda. Because, mm-hmm. you know, when I, when I first started Drilled, I was just going to do one six-part season about kind of the origins of climate denial. And then in the course of doing that, really what I started thinking was, climate denial is such a dumb tactic. Like, why did it work? You know, (laughs) Um, you know, (laughs) like, it's just dumb just to sort of be like, -uh." Um, (laughs) nah, it's it's not like a genius strategy, you know? And yet so bizarrely effective, like like it it is for toddlers. It works for them too. Yes, exactly. So um, of course, you know, it's telling people what they want to hear in some ways that like, oh, this problem might not be that bad. And maybe we don't need to do anything drastic and whatever. But I, also felt like there must be more to it. And so I started to kind of look at what was the industry doing before? It's not like they just started doing PR when global warming was researched. Mm. And the more I dug into that, the more I realized like, okay, they really spent a lot of time and thought to shape how people kind of view the world in general, and especially how people view environmental issues for a really long time before anyone was talking about climate change. And that has a lot to do with then once this issue appears, how we actually process and deal with it. But in the course of doing that, I also found all this stuff about sort of what the PR firms and the PR people who were working for big oil were doing for all these other industries at the same time. And it seemed important to me for people to just understand that this is this is a long-standing system and set of strategies that was really, really, I mean, this sounds like an overstatement, but it was created to circumvent democracy. You know, it's Mm -hmm. the the modern PR industry comes about when you have journalists criticizing America's captains of industry for the first time. You have the vote expanding beyond just landowning white men. Give us a time frame here where these kind of forces are coming together to birth this thing. This is like in the late 1800s. So, oh, wow. And early 1900s. So you have you know, sort of like end of the 19th, dawn of the 20th century. All these things are happening. The U.S. government passes its very first regulation on business in 1887. Mm. So there's all these reasons, right, that, that industry in general across the board is like, oh, wow, we really need a way to kind of get a handle on this thing that's getting away from us. You know, I call it creeping democracy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Creeping accountability lurking outside. Yeah, yeah. And so you have a lot of these early PR guys are working for, you know, coal and rail and oil and tobacco all at the same time. Um, And then quickly chemicals joins that list too. So like the reason that we see these strategies kind of replicated in multiple industries is not that um, an oil executive is studying the moves of of a tobacco executive. It's that they're using the same PR firms. Mm. In in the case of oil and tobacco, I mean, John W. Hill was working for the American Petroleum Institute and all the tobacco companies at the same time. And he encouraged them to talk to each other. He got the tobacco guys to join the API. The oil companies, I feel like people have forgotten this, were co-defendants of the tobacco companies during the tobacco mm. litigation because they helped to create the cigarette filter. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. And that was all brokered by their PR and, and spokespeople. So anyway, I, I felt like, OK, I have all this documentation sitting on my desk. It's not doing anyone any good there. 
when I started to kind of digitize a lot of stuff and I thought, oh, well, you know, document cloud is kind of hard to navigate. So I should put this on a website that kind of guides people through it. And then I thought, you know, there's a significant number of people who, even if they believe we should act on climate, will never listen to a climate podcast because Mm -hmm. they have a certain idea in their minds of what that means. Um, So I... (laughs) (laughs) I know nothing about what you're saying. What? Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I thought, okay, I'm going to do a companion podcast that just sort of looks at how disinformation is created and really like how it became an industry in and of itself in the U.S. a long time before we started talking about Facebook and Twitter or climate change and climate denial. Right. So let's let's go back in history a little bit then when this industry and approach is first coming together. What were some of the, the kind of early victories that helped kind of put the template in place for what these guys could do for an industry? Yeah. I mean, this is fascinating to me too, because I think there are all these things that people kind of take at face value as being like, oh, that's just like a cultural shift that happened in America, you know? And then you find out yes. later. it was After reading Rigged for a while, I'm like, my God, literally everything has been, <laughs> literally everything has been coordinated. I'm living in the matrix. It's really nuts. It is. So one of my favorite examples of this is Freud's nephew, this guy, Edward Bernays, who um, really, you know, integrated a lot of Freud's theories into his work in the 1920s. Um, really, he, I mean, he lived to be over 100. So he was working from like the 20s through the 70s. But he uh, had a watchmaker come to him who was concerned about the fact that apparently it was considered feminine to wear a wristwatch. And so, uh. yes. And so men were not wearing wristwatches. If you like real men had pocket watches. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so, so Bernays is like, okay, how can I get at this? And he starts to think about, okay, who, who are the manliest of men? And he lands on soldiers. And so he commissions a study. The troops. Yes, the troops. And so he commissions a study. And Bernays was really like a frequent user of this sort of commissioning an expert to do a study. And, you know, whether or not that study was very valid or not is um, is very, <laughs> is very suspect. But but at the time, especially it was like, oh, it's an expert study. So, you know, <laughs> um, that's a fact. Uh, so he commissioned a study to look at how many soldiers were killed while lighting a match to look at their pocket watch. Mm-hmm. Yes. That seems like something you can definitely pin precisely. <laughs> definitely. You can put it, you can put in a number the 20s. on the 20s. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so he says, he goes to the army and he says, you know, you could have a 25% reduction in the number of men being killed if you just made wristwatches standard issue. And so they did. Because um, it was looking at the pocket watches and also winding them. That that. Uh, oh yeah, that's definitely going to get you killed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he he got the army to make wristwatches standard issue, and that really effectively broke this taboo about it being you know feminine to wear a wristwatch. Ah, clever, and he sort of did yes. a, a, a slightly reverse thing with women and smoking, which I also found yes. sort of fascinatingly yes. devilish. Yes. I mean, this is, and it's amazing too how quickly these things work. So, in the case of smoking, American tobacco came to him with a similar kind of gender taboo. It was considered uncouth for women to smoke. So, he had this idea to call up some of his friends, like young socialite daughters who worked at like 
you know, Vogue magazine and whatever, and have them stage a protest walking up and down Fifth Avenue smoking and say that it was a women's empowerment thing. And then, (laughs) yeah. And then he called all of the the, um, newspapers and told them, hey, there's this protest happening. And they all covered it. And it, I mean, it was in all the national papers. He called cigarettes torches of freedom. Wow. Um, he also really tapped into Freudian stuff there too, where he, it was all about like women and penis envy and all of this stuff. <laughs> he was, he was quite a dude. Um, and then, yeah, within six months or so, it was like this taboo had been totally broken down and the tobacco industry had like doubled its customer base, you know? So, so yeah, there again, it's like, I'm sure most people at the time just thought that, you know, it really was like a women's empowerment thing, but it was all manufactured. Yes. Uh, shades of the Tea Party. Another yes. another thing that I think maybe people think of as a sort of modern phenomenon, which is attacking the media as sort of biased or fake news or whatever, or trying to just bully the media into doing a both sides approach of what ought to be a clear issue. Turns out that goes way back too. That's not um, not an invention of modern Republicans <laughs> either. No, it is not. Um, Bernays did a bit of that. Even Ivy Lee, who was the very, very first kind of modern publicist who worked for Standard Oil, did that. And then in the 60s and 70s, my favorite Herb Schmertz, the VP of public affairs for mobile oil, um, he really like hammered that home. Um, He was sort of famous for bullying journalists and threatening them with, you know, pulling ads if they didn't cover mobile's point of view on things, which he did actually do with the Wall Street Journal for a significant number of years. (laughs) And he even... He even like went one step further and um, refused to give them access to even like quarterly earnings reports and stuff. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) One of the interesting stories I read on Rig now, I read a bunch of them uh, in the last couple of days. So they're all kind of running together. So I can't remember the specifics, but the guy was on the phone with the journalist and the journalist was talking about reforms and whether he agreed with reforms. Yeah. And the guy was like, well, when you say reforms you're implying that it's bad right. and needs to be made better, which is an opinion and not real news. That's right. And successfully bullied the journalist into just saying changes rather yes. than reforms. Like yes. it's amazing how sort of vulnerable to this journalists are and have yeah. been. Yes, totally. Um, that was Ivy Lee, actually. He he shifted the to- the the language around railroad labor requirements. So there was a, a bill. I mean, this is, again, it's like going back to the late 1800s that was, they were wanting to require trains to have additional staff because they were crashing all the time. They were very <laughs> negligent and they were having massive crashes and killing lots of people. And so it was like, oh, you guys are understaffing these trains. They need to be properly staffed. And and Ivy Lee, he shifted the language around it from being like a minimum number of staff to additional staff, which is a really <laughs> like key thing when you think yeah. about it. You know, it's like, oh, and on this side, I mean, I was just thinking about that today with how the oil industry talks about methane and how everything is a methane leak, which sounds like accidental right. and like, oopsie, but like, 
know, you guys are letting it rip constantly, like sometimes just because you want to burn off gas. Yeah, we've been having this accident happen consistently every day for decades. At the same now. time for some reason. <laughs> yeah, like, okay, sure. So yeah, those teeny tiny things. And the thing is, like, something like that, like word choice um, is something that Industries of all kinds spend an enormous amount of time and money, you know, choosing the exact right wording. And, and they've been doing that forever. Like one, one of the guys that I, I um, found his archive recently, was a guy named Earl Newsom, who worked for, he worked for Standard Oil from like the late 20s to the late 70s, I want to say, maybe late 60s. Um, but he also worked for Campbell's Soup and GM and Ford and all of, like all the big American companies. And he was using he was using Elmo Roper to do like really early polling stuff in the 20s mm. and then using that to inform his PR plan. Or like I found um, they included all of the invoicing documents in, in his archival stuff. And I mean, some of these companies were spending millions of dollars on PR in the late 20s already. <laughs> Especially, it seems like early in the game, when these things were new and no one had any defense mechanisms, they were they were wildly successful. I mean, yes. that was, that's an incredible payoff for a little bit of investment. Yes. I mean, even with the, the very first press release, which Ivy Lee created and sent out to the New York Times, it ended up just getting printed word for word because they were so caught off guard by the fact that the company was disclosing all this information. Uh, <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's easy to sort of condemn the corporate side of that move, but the, the response of journalists is a little bit more muddy. Like, yeah, you can sort of see why it it's effective on journalists, right? Because journalists mm -hmm. do want to be fair. That's really like, you know, that kind of fairness has sort of calcified into objectivity or yeah. even something even dumber than objectivity. Like it's 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 yeah. become kind of a, a parody of itself. But that but the impulse is real. Like I understand why journalists, ha you know, were were sort of subject to this. Totally. I mean, that's the thing is that it, it really effectively weaponized actually good intentions. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so much so much of this seems to take that form of like, mm -hmm. you know, basically a good impulse. How can we harness that to, yeah. to a horrible effect? Yeah, totally. It was, again, just very smart because at the time, like in the early days, part of what they were organizing against was the sort of muckraking journalism that like Ida Tarbell and Ida B. Wells and Upton Sinclair oh, and right, all those right. folks were doing. Right. And so a part of that strategy was to kind of paint this picture that, oh, those journalists are really activists. They're biased. They have an agenda. Right. And you don't want to be that type of journalist, which I still see today constantly. Oh, yeah. And it's like, it's sort of like on its face... Like, we don't have an agenda. Literally, the corporation <laughs> yes. has millions of dollars on the line. Yes. It's definitely these poorly paid right. muckrakers. Right. It's, uh, it's a little crazy they get away with it. Yeah. So I thought that, you know, one of the most useful things on Rigged is just this sort of glossary of techniques that have come into use since uh, the late 1800s. And, it's, you know, it's a pretty bounded set of, of techniques that they mm -hmm. come to uh, again and again and again. So I thought we could look at a couple of them through the lens of kind of fossil fuel companies, because obviously yeah. that's my my personal uh, obsession. Mm -hmm. So like some of them, I think people understand already sort of get like astroturfing, you right. know, the sort of making of 
fake grassroots groups. Mm -hmm. I think that at this point, like most people kind of get what that is. Yeah. And most people sort of get, you know, the making up of fake experts or, you know, starting Mm -hmm. your own think tank or buying a friggin' academic department (laughs) and having them (laughs) crank out studies for you. But some of these are less, um, less obvious. And one of the things that I found amazing is how involved the fossil fuel companies have been in school curriculum going way, way back, way back. They actually, I mean, they started that, like they did that before any other industry. Oh, they were uh, groundbreaking on that. uh... Yes, they were. Yeah. Standard Oil was a real early mover on that. They, they put out the very first really corporate sponsored curriculum for schools in 1928. They did these um, pressed albums actually that they sent to schools. It was called the Standard School Broadcast. And it seemed on the face of it, like it had nothing to do with oil. That's the the genius thing too, is like, they are very good at doing this in a a sort of subtle way. So these, this program was um, music appreciation and history. So seems on the face of it, fine. Right. Who could be against that? (laughs) Right. But then it's like, you get, I actually like went on a little bit of a, a spending spree buying up like old vinyl um from the standard (laughs) school so they have like there's i have this one that's like all about the industrial revolution and it is i mean it's classic it's like there's this whole part where they they have they do these kind of like um radio vignette style stories in between the music and there's one where they have this like very shrill voiced woman being like the consumer protection person who's like <laughs> of course <laughs> and, of course and she's shrill even, yeah she's super shrill and they call <laughs> her like um they ha- they give her some name that's like uh sa- just sounds annoying too it's like ms snap or whatever <laughs> <laughs> you know the type <laughs> yeah exactly and it's like um just totally setting up this whole thing of well, do you want to give up your car and live like the aboriginals do? <laughs> like that kind of thing, you know, like really, really early. This is um, this one that I'm referencing in particular came out in like the 40s. So it's just like, oh, wow, they've been setting up this idea that anyone who suggests government intervention uh, that would interfere with profits in the name of public safety or the environment or anything like that, that, you know, that that is a backwards thing, that it's not sensible. And it's going to leave you in poverty, yes. uh, you know, hiking around. Right. Yeah. And, and and one of the things also that I find interesting about it, and this I feel like is something that the corporates do better than the good guys do, which is they don't just go in and say oil is great, right? No, never, never. A lot of it is a much deeper philosophical sort of just very subtle, but corporate capitalism is the nature of the world, right? right? Just very, it's sort of propaganda on a deeper level than just Mm -hmm. their interests. They're Mm -hmm. trying to sort of convey a worldview. Yes, very much. And and the thing of it is like when you put that worldview in a classroom or in the mouth right. of a teacher that young children are taught to trust and believe, that is like a real insidious form of propaganda <laughs> that that is very hard to shake. And it's just it's wild because like, you know, I've I spent the last several months looking 
particularly at the school stuff, because um, we did a series with with Arthur on the school curriculum stuff in particular. And what I wanted to focus on was the the non-science part, actually, because mm-hmm. I think that that is, I don't know, it's like we've gotten to this point, right, where everyone's like, oh, climate is, the problem is political will, not understanding the science. But we haven't really looked at like where that problem with political will has come from, you know, and and just how far back it goes that like, oh, these guys were investing in shaping a very specific worldview. And making you feel like if you object to part of it, you are basically standing up against modernity and sort of, you know, like industrialized life, modern life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that you're backwards, that you're a communist, that... (laughs) You're not American. I mean, it's very like tied to all of that. And you it's just insane to me how much you see that messaging today. In all the coverage of Mansion and the Build Back Better stuff, I'm seeing this pitting, you know, the environment against the economy or like environmentalists as some sort of special interest group. Um, that just cares about trees like that is still so prevalent now. Yeah. And those narratives, like if you get them in people's heads when they're young, Mm -hmm. they don't think of them as narratives, right? Right. (laughs) They just think it's how the world works. Yes. And it becomes so deeply rooted that no amount of kind of contrary facts, do they just bounce off the narrative, right? Those narratives are so much stronger than evidence. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, totally. And to me, I'm like, oh, this is why science denial was such a slam dunk because it like reinforced the the narrative that people had already been brainwashed with for decades. And this stuff with schools, you know, that some of the older stuff is to our modern eyes, I think quite crude, like (laughs) (laughs) Presumably, hopefully now school administrators would not be like literally handing out shell, you know, comic books about how oil is great. But fossil fuels are still at it on the the school stuff. So what's this kind of like modern version of that? Well, actually, we ta- I, um, when we did this series with Arthur, Darna Noor and I worked on it together. And Darna found a guy in Cambridge, Massachusetts at a Montessori school. Uh-huh. So like not a red state or a red area who his kid had come home with a bunch of coloring and activity books from a natural gas company all about how natural gas is great and it's your invisible oh, well, friend. Maybe the crude stuff does still work. Maybe I was too optimistic. Yeah. And it was like suggesting that kids go and talk to their family members oh about how, how they use natural gas. And it's, you know, the other um, very, very persistent thing in there, and which is so effective too, is just reminding people how much they use this stuff. So like how complicit they are too. You know, it's like, look at all the ways that you use natural gas in your home and all of the things that it delivers to you. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so and the more tied up it is, the more tied up it is with your identity, mm-hmm. the more resistant you are to the idea that it's bad because that's not, right. You're bad, right? I mean, right. that's, they want to uh, link you to, to it in a way. That, right. And, and and all this is, again, like, I just don't feel like the left does this very well. Like, when people think about fossil fuel influence, they think, you know, their minds go to sort of lobbying and money, like writing Joe Manchin a check. Mm-hmm. But actually, and I, and I feel like these early stories help make this very clear, it's just like they've been laying the groundwork in That's culture, right. not just in politics, but in culture for decades. And so it's sort of like fertile soil 
on which they can plant, you know, a lobbying campaign or something like that. Like the, the ground right. has been prepared for, for a century. Yeah. For a century. Like that's not even, an, that's not hyperbole. It's actually slightly more than a century. <laughs> <You know? laughs> are there things you found out that fossil fuel companies are doing or have done that shocked or surprised you that you think most people aren't the aware thing, of? The thing that like blew my mind the most was this um, in this Earl Newsom archive. So he, again, was like a, a publicist for Standard Oil. He I also um, I should mention in respect to him, but really kind of all of these folks, they're very interesting because they make a very clear delineation between what they do and what what they would call press agents do, which is like get media coverage and, you know, right. things like that. Like they are, when they say public relations, they mean really being the intermediary and like mediating the relationship between the company or the industry and the general public, but also multiple other publics. So like right. legislators, moms, students, whatever. Um, and this guy in particular saw himself as sort of a, a conciliary to um, to CEOs on this stuff, you know, really would. I mean, the, some of the stuff in his files, it was like he's weighing in on whether or not they should accept a particular award because, mm. you know, like what connotation does that have? And like real, I mean, just to a level that I don't think that the left even understands, never mind knows how to do. Um, like I just, yeah. But um, in his files, I found this one box from the Standard Oil archive that was like confidential, confidential. And there were all these plans in there around free enterprise. And so this was like in 1944, as World War II is coming to an end, mm. this guy is meeting with all of his big clients. So it's not just Standard Oil, but also GM and Campbell's Soup and all of them. And he's like, you guys, like we have a big problem coming down the pipeline here. And it's not war. And it's not even the fact that, you know, the government's not going to be buying stuff from you anymore. Uh, Americans have gotten very comfortable with the government running things. The government has done mm. a good job. Right. And Americans are starting to like it a little too much. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> and and it, so it's like we are we really run the risk here of Americans turning away from the sort of free market approach that we have come to to rely upon in this country. And this is a huge problem for business. We need to coordinate a campaign that reminds them of why free enterprise is actually, you know, the best thing for them. And we can't even we cannot use the words free enterprise. We cannot coordinate this through the U.S. Chamber or the National Association of Manufacturers because everyone knows they're just shills for business. This is in the 1940s. They're already like saying this, you know. Uh. Um, <laughs> Uh, we have to do it, you know, we have to coordinate, but we ca it can't look coordinated. Um, we need like a, f a full court press here. We need ads that are focused on like cool gadgets that we're coming up with in our research and development departments. We need to be talking about the high wages that we're paying. We need to invest in universities. This is when they start going really big on investing in universities because they want educated people to be coming out of universities with a fixed idea about like how important free enterprise is to the country. I mean, it is like comprehensive 
And and to me, I was like, <gasps> it has flourished flourished ever since, right? Yes. I mean, that's that basically is the whole right wing now. Like that's... totally, totally. I was like, oh my god, did these guys start the Cold War? Like this is really. <laughs> I think that uh, that post-war era is so interesting yeah. to me. You know, when you look yeah. at it, when you when you learn about it in history, it's you know you learn about these sort of big structural forces. Like the war was ending, there was a war surplus, mm-hmm. all, all this economic vitality, and then sort of like out of that grew roads and giant corporations and all this kind of you know uh-huh. as though yes, it was just the unfolding, <laughs> unfolding of history. But but right in that post-war era was such a flurry, a concentration of people trying to take hold and direct the U.S. in particular directions, right? Like yes. it, it was, yes. it was propaganda flourishing. Basically. It really was. And the, the, um, the thing that really made my head explode was that shortly after that, I found stuff in the Bernays archive where he had been doing this, like giving almost the exact same speech to his clients at the same time. Mm. Like, uh Oh guys. So I'm like, well, between the two of them, Earl Newsom and Edward Bernays were working for, you know, the top 100 companies in the country at that point. And if they were sounding the alarm about this and, and getting their clients to coordinate and do all these campaigns and stuff like that, that would have been a pretty highly effective campaign. And for me, like, I'm like, I mean, I grew up with this idea that like, Oh yeah, post-war. Yeah. Like the war surplus and we have all this infrastructure that we need to use and all these people that we need to put to work. And also Americans are just so grateful that the war is over, that they're just buy like in a, in the mood to buy, you know, (laughs) washing hmm. machines and and (laughs) vacuum cleaners, all this kind of stuff came out around then. But really it's like, Oh yeah, these guys have been trying to sell us on the idea that convenience and quote unquote modernity are the most important things for forever. Another fascinating section of the of the site just profiles some of the people, some yes. of the sort of uh, heroes. I don't know if that's the word. <laughs> I'm fascinated by them. I'm really like I'm of the propaganda movement. Yeah, I am mm-hmm. fascinated by them too. I'm always I have an unhealthy fascination with awful people because yes. you know people who beat themselves up constantly about their lack of you know how they ought to be better mm-hmm. look at people who are just flagrantly awful and <laughs> seemingly just happy as fucking clams I know. and it's like a different yeah. species it's very difficult yeah. to understand but but let's yeah. look at just just to take an example let's talk about richard berman oh god dr evil yes just a fascinating <laughs> a it's fascinating how effective he's been and all the things yeah. he's kind of invented but i also just kind of find him fascinating as a person but sort of what was his uh signature achievement <laughs> Yeah, so he worked for Philip Morris um, during all of the kind of tobacco stuff for a long time. He is supposedly the person that the main character in the movie Thank You for Smoking is based on. (laughs) Yeah, um, so he worked for, for them kind of trying to work the public and legislators during, you know, the 90s kind of tobacco litigation. And then they gave him a bunch of money to start a PR firm. And with that, he created all kinds of front groups. Like he's just, it's like this incredible web of front groups that he has started. Uh, The Center for Consumer Freedom, the Center for 
like responsible science. Yeah. My favorite was when the Center for Consumer Freedom somehow became well known as this, he changed the name to something. And I was like, that's the most spectacularly generic name. I've, I literally can't remember it. <laughs> it is. It's. I know the acronym is CORE. But, um, yeah, it's you literally can't remember it because it's like organizational something, just a bunch of buzzwords. Like you would find it literally difficult to concentrate on that name and think think about it. It's the Center for Organizational Research and Education. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That could be anything. That could be literally anything. Yeah, I was like, oh, it sounds like a social science research <laughs> tank or right. something. You know? Yeah. Apparently, it's just trivially easy to crank out these groups like i don't i don't know if he just discovered that or if he did something to make it easier or is he just the one who's like oh here's this thing i could exploit the the shit out of yeah he was just kind of like an early mover on astroturfing and these front groups and then he also like figured out that he could very easily hide the funding behind them right so I think this, the Center for Consumer Freedom is is technically a nonprofit. And so, but it's like the sort of nonprofit that doesn't really have to disclose much. And so they they basically just like, it's like their main payment outgoing every year is to Rick Berman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And if any of these groups come in for any sort of legal or any other kind of trouble, it's equally easy just to scrap them and, and, yeah, and, he and just make a new one. Yeah, he just scraps them and makes a new one. He's got like five or six that are all about unions. Um, he like I, The thing I th- find the most entertaining about him is that he was given the nickname Dr. Evil by 60 Minutes like in the early 2000s. And um, he was so delighted by it. Yeah, loves it. That he actually includes it in his like request for funding now. <laughs> like as a proof of how successful he is well this is kind of a question an unanswerable question i'm sure you've beat your head against too which is like these guys this guy is doing stuff that to our eyes just looks almost comically evil thus the nickname like even 60 minutes your disinterested (laughs) journalists were like damn this stuff is evil let's call him dr evil and he doesn't give a shit he loves it he loves being called that so like this guy and these other guys too, are they evil and they know they're evil and they don't care and they like being evil? Or do you think on some level they have a story that they tell themselves about themselves where mm-hmm. they're the good guys, where they're fighting on the right side of things? Like yeah. how, how conscious is the evil? I mean, this is what fascinates me about them because I'm also just like, what makes these people tick? And I think <laughs> there's it's. Um, A lot of times people are like, oh, it's just money. And I think that's true for some, you know, probably some percentage. But in my experience, it is, it's like people can only do something just for money for so long before they have to create a narrative for themselves, you know, and then. In Berman's case, I think, and in a lot of these guys' cases, I think they have completely drunk the Kool-Aid on how important it is to protect capitalism as part and parcel of freedom. Like, I I think they just 100% believe that, like, if you don't have capitalism, you don't have freedom, and anything that erodes capitalism erodes freedom. But the funny thing is, if you go read the theoretical foundations 
of capitalism, why mm-hmm. it's supposed to work and why it's supposed to be so virtuous. Part of the theory is transparency. Part of the right. theory is people knowing right. what other people are doing <laughs> and what things really cost and all yes. that. Like, And everyone having the same information, right? Yes, like, that's yeah. like central to the theory. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, I know. It's, it's bizarre what capitalism has sort of become in the heads of of some of these guys. I know yeah. with Rick Berman, he fascinates me too because his tactics are so crude, like they're so dumb, you know. <laughs> yeah, but... he he's an early version of what we all ran into with Trump, right? Which is, yeah. wait a minute, you don't have to be smart, you don't have nope. to really be clever. Your tactics don't have to be subtle. Nope, nope. Yeah, you could like... just be big dumb. Yeah, and it works. It totally works. And he, um, but he, there was this tape that was leaked of him to the New York Times, like in I, I want to say like 2014, 2015, when anti fracking stuff was starting to really grow, and he got brought in to give a, a talk to the Western States Petroleum Association, you know, conference or whatever. And he's talking about, you know, oh, you can do this, you can do that, blah blah. But then he says this thing that I'm like, oh my god, this is it, because he says, you know, you don't have to convince people to like fracking. You don't even have to convince them that it's not bad. You just have to get a tie. All you need is a tie. A tie <laughs> is a win for you. Uh, like, and I'm like, so oh true. my god, it's so true. And that's the <laughs> that's the big problem, right? Is that like, if your client is the status quo, it's much yes. easier to get that than if you're trying to push for change. You actually do need a win. You need to get people to a point where they're willing to act. Yes, which is like not just neutral; it's way beyond neutral. Like you got to right. build a lot of energy to do anything good or constructive. Yeah, and it's so easy just to sap. Yeah. A little bit of that energy. It's so much easier to sell complacency than change. You know? uh, so <laughs> yeah. this, I guess that's, that's part of an answer to my next question, which is why, you know, I, this is probably like what 99% of liberals say after they find out about Richard Berman, which is what the hell? Why is there no Dr. Evil of good? Why is there I no know. Dr. Good? Like where are the lefts, the climate left, any left, where are their Machiavellian operators who are doing PR and, and propaganda? Like, where yeah, are they? I know. I find this very puzzling. The only thing that I've come even close to an answer on is, is that, like, there's a weird... Uh, well, there's two things. One, I think that the left gets into this trap of thinking that, like, this stuff is dumb and silly and doesn't work. Um, which is not true. I mean, how much I, evidence do you Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Look around. Um, and then I, there's like this, this like whole, I don't know, like false sense of nobility that like, mm. oh, we don't want to, you know, they go low, we go high, all that kind of stuff. And it's uh, like, well, you know, or are you just like bringing a spoon to a knife fight? You know, like. <laughs> yes. Even the ones who try are like, oh, it's kind of wincy. It's You're cringy. like. cringy. Oh, it's yeah. really cringy. Yeah. And That's I'm like, you it. know, there are people with money on the left. We're outspent. The left is outspent, at least on climate. The left is outspent 10 to 1 on like PR and lobbying stuff. So That's like, you know. There's way less money, but it's not because it doesn't exist. It's just because like there's been this choice that's been made to not invest in this stuff for some reason. Even like like I've talked to a few of the folks who are um, kind of experts in the climate psychology realm, and they're like, I know that like my counterpart on the right is being hired by like every PR firm right. in the country with the knowledge for some to reason. use. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, I don't know why. Yeah, I have. 
somewhat of a theory. I was going to ask about this a little bit later, but I might as well ask about it now because yeah. I, I wonder if you get resistance on the left to your work because I just I think it's been true for a long time, but more recently we know that the parties are sort of dividing by educational attainment and sort mm-hmm. of legendarily now the left is mostly well-educated or not, not mostly, not by numbers, but let's say the sort of intellectual vanguard, the left's Mm -hmm. talkers and thinkers and spokespeople are drawn from this sort of hyper-educated, you know, they go to nice schools. And I just feel like there's a, I don't know if it's a personality thing or if socialization, but they just love words. They love persuasion. They love the idea I'm talking to myself here, as if you can't tell. <laughs> they, lo- they love the idea that like public life is determined by dialogue and persuasion and who's got the best argument. Right. And doing this stuff is an acknowledgement that, in fact, people are irrational and yeah. public opinion is shaped. And just it, just it just involves admitting a lot of things about the world that are very disturbing to people who have been trained in word. In words. Yes, I think that's very true. I think that um, there's this sense that, you know, appealing to people's lizard brain is like talking down to them or even like is beneath me as like an educated person. Of course. You know, like, um, but it's like, well, you, I mean, I, we heard like we've seen this in the climate movement up until maybe the last five years, right? Where it's like it was never okay to include any kind of emotion in any kind of climate. Yeah, climate. or any exaggeration or any stray beyond the strict con- confines of yeah. science. Yeah, exactly. But it's like, well, they're not doing that. Like you're trying to combat really like the most primitive poking of like the fear button yes. with fucking charts and graphs. Come on. <laughs> you know, I know. And I, used to, I used to get into arguments with people. I'd say, oh, so you so you agree that climate is an existential issue. Species on the line. Nothing, literally nothing could be more important. Mm-hmm. But you won't get lie. mad about it. You lie. won't get mad. Yeah. You won't use emotionally manipulative language. That's too far to save the (laughs) fucking species. Like, just how seriously are you taking climate change if your sort of intellectual virtue comes first, right? That's right. It's an argument I have with myself. That's basically my my (laughs) my inner dialogue. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is, I think it's a big part of it. And I actually think that that is what scares the shit out of oil companies about the youth climate movement. Mm. Because like, um, we, I got leaked this, this report, oh, maybe like two years ago, that was like an internal BP marketing strategy thing where they were, they were sort of like, what are we going to do? You know? (laughs) And and it was like so much about the like emotional authenticity Of of, of the youth climate movement and how they have not figured out how to like deal with that you know well you see the natural gas industry sort of putting these what are they uh ambassadors these Mm -hmm. like sort of hip in a like commercial you'd see on tv sort of version of hip like an apple commercial racial you know (laughs) just the right balance of everything yeah cooking on their gas stoves just loving it and being cool yeah and i'm like that's you guys are you're missing not it. Not quite it. <laughs> it's not quite it, guys. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there was that campaign that um, Porter Novelli kind of like got busted for doing for the natural gas industry that was very much in that vein, too, where it was like hip urban uh, millennials, like, you know, doing cool stuff, listening to music like cool <laughs> kids do. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> TikTok. <laughs> 
yeah. Yeah. And just one other note on this, just as you can see, this is kind of an obsession of mine. But like I, in addition to the story the youth climate movement is telling, which is about sort of emotion and earth and protecting one another, protecting mm-hmm. youth and all this kind of very environmental sort of focused values. There's this other story that we could also be telling from the tech community about like, mm-hmm. look at all these cool gizmos mm-hmm. that are being suppressed and denied to you by these lazy incumbents who are politically entrenched. Like you could be living a cool whiz bang life with your solar panels and your EV and your cool electrical panel that's smart and has fucking 5G, like all this, you know, this cool life you could have. Yeah. But you're being held back in like primitive technology by Mm -hmm. incumbents. Like that's a great message that, I mean, that's exactly what the, the oil industry messaged in the fifties, right? Like we should absolutely do that. That message is on the side of clean tech now. Like that's, but like, where's Richard Berman to to do this propaganda? Like no one's, no one's out there telling it. So one thing I, I wanted to ask about, which is obviously a big change recently, is the development of social media. And I just, you know, sort of on its face, I think, well, what works on social media? You know, we've all heard these critiques by now. It's negative emotions. Mm -hmm. It's outrage. It's anger. And that just says to me that social media, even more than traditional media, is practically built for misinformation. Yeah. <laughs> like it just is a much, it's so fruitful for these guys. It's so helpful to these guys. Am I wrong about that? Or is there? No, that's uh, absolutely true. It's very, I, in fact, I actually, I, um, I interviewed this woman a while ago who was talking about how basically the like rapid corporatization of social media companies was driven by industry's fear of the sort of early free form internet. Oh, interesting. All that utopian early internet. Yes. That they were just like, but then we have lost control of the story. If like, there's just this, giant open public messaging machine where people are just sharing stories and ideas who knows what they might say. we don't get to control it yes um i mean that is like the origin story of kind of the social media industry as we know it you know it's it's very much about giving that control back to the people who've always had power in this country. Right. And then, and then here again, we have all these like early internet pioneers out in public saying, we had such big dreams. What happened? It just went the wrong way. I'm like, it, it didn't just go the wrong way, dude. Right. Exactly. It's like <laughs> every time. go that way. Yeah, that's right. It's like there's this pendulum all throughout history where it's like you see it, you know, okay, the muckrakers were like, I'm going to just tell the truth and we're going to get these guys or whatever. And they very quickly mobilize and and come up with like with PR to stop that. In the 60s, you have the social justice movements, you know, mm. rising up and they very quickly mobilize with new PR techniques to stop that, you know, and then you have the internet is like in its first, very first you know, stages, perhaps like the most democratic thing we mm. ever had. No, that's not going to stand. <laughs> that's not going to stand. They're not going to let it, you know? So I, I think, and, and there again, I just feel like it's important for people to understand this so that they, I don't know, kind of know why it's important to, to fight for a genuinely free press and why yes, it's just important. Just to see the people behind you know? the curtain, right? Yeah. They're always, they're always people <laughs> behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. Is there any positive story to tell about social media? Any hope, anything about it? Or like, cause I feel very, 
fatalistic about it, frankly. Like I just, I can't envision a rational <laughs> information ecosystem being built atop this foundation. But like, yeah. is there anything happy to say? I mean, the very complicated problem right now is that social media needs to be regulated. I mean, I like that's the that's the reality. Like it's not going to happen with some combination of like you know, self-imposed fact-checking processes or whatever the fuck they're proposing. Yeah. You know, like that's not, it's no, it's never going to work. I know. Your little warning, your little warnings <laughs> at the bottom of the tweets. It's yeah, just, exactly. I, I see that and it makes me, it's like more depressing than if they'd done nothing. I was I like, know. oh my God. This I is know, it. I know. Yeah. And so I think, you know, what's happened is that like social media has been allowed to behave like media, but without any of the same mm regulations on it. Like you can say stuff and actually podcasts fall into this too. I, um, I looked into this last year because I was hearing all of these really over the top ads from Exxon in podcasts about like the amazing potential of carbon capture. And they were like vastly overstating it. Like, so I mean, it's like, <laughs> we're going to capture 90% of the emissions from factories. And I, oh, okay, sure. <laughs> like, when? That sounds um, great. Yeah, and I, I was hearing it on like si like the Science Friday podcast or like Invisibilia Ugh. or whatever, all these NPR science podcasts. And so I reached out to the folks at NPR to ask them because NPR has extremely strict standards about what kinds of ads they allow mm. on broadcast. And I was like, why is this so not in line with what you would allow on the radio? And they said, because it doesn't fall under the FCC requirements. And I was like, okay, I mean, don't you just have the same guidelines? And they were like, well, no, I mean, it's not governed by the FCC. And I'm like, okay, so just to be clear, your ethics policy is anything that's not illegal goes because like, <laughs> that's, but that's where we're at is like with social media and podcasts and a lot of websites, they're under the federal trade commission, not the FCC. And there are technically guidelines that you're supposed to follow, but they're like not really enforced. Even just to file an FTC complaint is a giant pain in the ass. And mm. then it could go nowhere, you know? Um, so I think that that is something that really needs to be addressed. Uh, there's no reason why if you're going to basically become a publisher that you shouldn't follow the same rules as, as an actual publisher. Right. Well, I was going to ask, like, insofar as you address solutions to this mm -hmm. problem of misinformation, you know, it's sort of two-sided. One is media literacy, which is just right. people being trained to recognize these things. And the other is regulation on social media. Mm -hmm. I have to admit that I have such low hopes on both those scores. Like, yeah. like the tide of information and BS that is crashing over every single human head right now just seems like teaching everybody individually right to sort of be out there in this jungle on their own and survive on their own just like seems too huge and daunting not, like know. nothing you could ever accomplish but on the other hand i don't know what regulations are either because at the in the end like someone needs to be making the judgments about what's okay and what's not what's true and what's not right and and the whole problem is 
I don't know that I want social media <laughs> companies <laughs> making no. those judgments, but then right. is it the government? Because right now, if it's a Republican right. government, Democrats don't care. And if it's a Democratic government, Republicans don't care. Like there's just no, it seems like we're circling around basically the loss of any trusted, you know, brokers or institutions yeah. that are trusted across. And without that, you're kind of screwed. Yes. Am I wrong? No, we... I don't think you're wrong. And we haven't even talked about the fact that, like, sadly, I think a lot of the media media has been very much warped by this too like how many stories come straight from a press release like let's think about that um <laughs> I, I i well uh, even even subtler things and little narrative things or verbal yeah. things you know like i've been thinking lately about every single story about how joe manchin mm-hmm. or how like kirsten cinema yeah. is literally tanking her president and her party's agenda mm-hmm. to keep taxes on rich people low mm-hmm. and every story about her she's called a moderate yeah right yep. the word is moderate like yeah. she's in between the parties and that's we know one of our sort of heuristic or normal human heuristics is like right. oh it's like medium like in between the two extremes has got to be good mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yes i mean that the thing of it is too is that i think it's gone on for so long that the media self censors in this very weird yes. way so like yes. yeah like i um i was working as a stringer for the washington post for a while and i was because of where I live. I live in California. So I would, you know, get sent to cover wildfires pretty much all the time. (laughs) (laughs) It's a full-time job now. Yeah. And so one of the stories I had talked to the Cal fire chief and he um, gave me just this very succinct explanation of exactly how climate change makes wildfire worse. He was like, this is, he said, you know, look, I've been fighting fires for 30 years in California. This is climate change. What's happening, what's making this so much worse is that we're not getting the increased humidity at night and mm. the cool temperatures. And nighttime used to be when we would get on top of a fire. And now we're not getting that. So it's just burning at the same intensity 24 hours. And it's, uh, he said that makes the fire worse, but it also burns out our crew, you know? (laughs) And, and, um, and I was like, Oh, this is such a great, like, and he's like, you know, not a flaming liberal by any stretch is like 30 year, you know, firefighter from like Redwood city or whatever. And like, anyway, the, my editor at the time, um, wanted to remove the mention of climate change because he said this is a this is like a, a disaster story, not a climate story. And I was like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, because oh, of wait, when, when was this? Can we? This was what? not that long ago. This was Ugh. like maybe seven or eight years ago. Um, but because I had the background that I had, I was like, oh, that's like you know, that's like a total fossil fuel framing. Like we don't need to be scared of letting some a fire chief mention climate change for fear <laughs> of it turning into a policy story. Like, and so. And he very quickly was like, okay, no, you're right. You're right. Okay. That makes sense. But that wasn't, you know, he didn't get a call from a a PR guy at mobile about it. It's internalized. It's internalized. There's a little Richard Berman (laughs) homunculus in his head now. Right. Because everybody has internalized this like liberal media trope, which is completely, you know, it's, I don't know, if you look at who actually owns the media, not true. Right, um, right. You know? And it's, you yeah. know, I think of it a little bit like my, the analogy I sometimes draw is the filibuster. You, you yeah. know, we've gone from the right being filibustering everything to now all McConnell has to do is send a memo mm-hmm. <laughs> saying, we're probably going to filibuster this. And so they just don't right. do things anymore. Like they don't force the confrontation anymore. And right. it's kind of the same with media. Like, 
all the right has to do or all the corporations have to do is say, you know, we're going to make climate change, uh, you know, a, a, a partisan thing. And, and mm-hmm. editors are immediately like, got it. I will yeah. use scrupulously neutral language. Like they don't even have yes. to really be browbeat into it anymore. It's all right. the whole machine is already built. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, it's kind of like one of the, the slight solutions I've seen is actually more people like yourself, like myself, <laughs> um, have, have actually kind of been like, I'm out. Like, I want to be able to report this accurately. And like, it's hard to do that in the confines. Yes. Of and I got to say, media. like, one yeah. of the best things about going independent, and maybe you agree, is just that I no longer have to muddle through these mm-hmm. um, metaphysical <laughs> questions. Like, how do I? What is this. and isn't journalism yes. and yes. what is and isn't fair. I just now I can just say what seems to me to be the truth. Right. Which is right. like seems like more people ought to be able to do. Right. Right. So you know, we know like the journalism, these criticisms of journalism are long standing, yes. such that it's really impossible to believe that the journalists in question are not aware of those mm-hmm. <laughs> of those critiques mm-hmm. and yet seem to have no effect. But yeah. but what do you think? You've been a climate journalist mm-hmm. for quite a while now. Mm-hmm. What do you think climate journalism is not doing or needs to do more? Like what what would be your critique of climate journalism specifically? I really wish that people would kind of get beyond the like science denial being the only thing that the fossil fuel industry pushes. I know they you don't know? even really more like they kind no. of stopped. They kind of stopped and everybody's still talking about it. I know. I'm like, you know, but, and, and in, in being so focused on that, I feel like they're missing all these other, mm-hmm. like they're missing and actually perpetuating all these other frames that also come from the fossil fuel industry. Cause there's just like, well, if it's not science denial, then it's not a talking point. Well, no. And the other thing is, I think, um, kind of at the other end of the spectrum is like just sort of buying every climate solution hook, line and sinker. Like, (laughs) you know, this kind of regurgitating what's been told to you. And also the, the idea that like activists have agendas, but CEOs don't, that needs to go. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like the, the people in the industry are the experts. Yeah. And then the, the the activists are these people with access to, to grind. It is weird yeah. how ubiquitous that is. It's really weird. So yeah, all of that stuff. And I think also like diversifying source lists. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, actually, I have to say, um, I hope this doesn't sound like I'm just like being a whiny freelancer, but, um, but I <laughs> am, I, I really thought by this point that I would not be having to do like climate 101 for every editor I work with. Oh God. (laughs) It's like, it's wild to me. I cannot, I'm surprised at how many times I hear from someone who's like, I'm the new editor of this climate vertical, but I don't have any background in climate. And I'm like, okay, like, I mean, okay, I guess that's fine. But it's just, uh, yeah, I I wish that like um, the powers that be in media would actually start taking climate as seriously as they've been saying they're going to take it for a really long time. Yeah. Some part of me, I mean, this might be exaggerating, but some part of me almost wonders if the public is a little bit ahead. Yeah. Of the kind of editorial class. Yes. <laughs> At this point, like the edit editors still think long stuff is boring. People don't care about wonky science. You got to do the inverted triangles. You can't, <laughs> right. Like do any uh, context, you know, all these sort of like Rules. myths and habits of, yeah. of journalism that just don't seem applicable anymore. They don't seem to reach the intended audience anymore. Yeah, I think that's really true. I feel like all of those things would be good. 
I wish that like more people would just sort of interrogate where the information they're getting is coming from journalists included. Like I don't, yes. you know, like I, I went to this, this is like a obscure reference, but I went to this podcast conference a few years ago and there was a, a speech that was done by Chenjirai Kumanika and Sandhya Dirks, who are both really great podcasters. And Sandhya is a reporter, Chenjirai is a, a professor at, at Rutgers. And the subject of the talk was every story is about power. Mm, and it love was, it. Al- already, it was so already love it. Good. It was so good. I just was like, I want to make every journalist I know listen to this. And they did such a good job of showing how that shows up and even like the dumbest stories. Like they did a story about Dunkin' Donuts, like bringing back a favorite donut or whatever, which you wouldn't think is like a, a massive investigation of class structure, right. but it totally was, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I think just thinking about it in that way of like, oh, like who's sending me this information and for what reason and who does it benefit yeah. and and like you say they they spent a long time trying to shape people's you know sort of scientific views about this or the mm-hmm. way science was presented in media but i almost think now they're spending more effort trying to shape how the solutions yep. and solution sets are presented. Like, I think they've sort of like given up the ghost on denialism and they That's know right. it's happening. They know we're going to do something about it and now want to take control of how we react. And and just mm-hmm. our, what are our assumptions about the parameters of a response, what that's it right. can and can't do, what's allowed and what's not allowed. That's right. And like the reason that that's so effective now is that that's what they've been doing all along. Like they started <laughs> narrowing the parameters of how we're allowed to think about environmental issues like 50 years before climate change came right. on scene. You know, so- they're just going back to that. <laughs> you know? Yes. This is, you know, I, I used to say this around the Waxman Markey uh, yes. uh, fight all the time. Like, you know, here's Democrats being like, we're going to issue these certificates and then you can trade them. But the total amount of certificates, you know, already 99% of people are tuned out. And what's the right do? Tax. It's a yes! tax. Boom. Yes. And, all, and the whole ideological infrastructure is already built. It's That's there. Right. You only have to invoke it. And you see it in the the mansion stuff now. SEP, 4%, da, 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 blah, blah, blah. All the right has to do is say, it's expensive though. Oh, $3 trillion, a lot of money. <laughs> yes. That's it. <sighs> yes, it will raise it will raise your costs. Yeah. And, the, and it's one of those things where literally I can list a dozen studies and models showing very specifically that doing this will reduce consumer energy costs. Like that's, that's right. one finding of literally all the studies about that's this. Right. And it just doesn't matter because it will raise your costs is like it's transcended to a realm where it's sort of like transcendently true despite, you know, regardless yeah. of the details. It's like right. written in the heavens. Right. But that one, oh my God, that killed me because I was like, if the Democrats had led with that before the right could even say anything about the price tag, like how much better would that have been than yes. like being like infrastructure, but we're also going to do climate, but it's going to be this like, I mean, come on. Like, yes. Uh, how, how about we have designed a bill here to reduce your energy costs. That's right. If you want to know the details, we can get into them, but mostly that's what's going to happen. Yeah, headline. It reduces costs and allows us to act on climate. Like, amazing, great. No one's against their electricity bill going down. Yes. Well, uh, I've kept you for a long time. I just have a final couple of questions. One is, I'm curious whether you think this stuff, both the kind of... uh fuckery of industry mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in, in PR and propaganda and the public's 
unknowing acceptance of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> the public's absorption of it in a ways they don't even recognize. Is that worse in the U.S.? And if so, why? It is. And actually, that's been studied. <laughs> yes. Definitively, yes. Oh, um, goodness. Yeah, I actually I was um, one of the researchers that I like to go back to kind of again and again on this stuff is a woman named um, Melissa Aronchik at Rutgers and she's Canadian. And so she like looked at the difference between how the the sort of the media had evolved and how the PR industry had evolved in the US versus in Canada and oh, like some other places. Her take is that the entire way that Americans understand what the environment is was shaped by PR. So it becomes like impossible to disentangle Americans thinking on environmental issues from PR. Because from the very, very beginning, like um, she goes way back to, do you know who Gifford Pinchot was? Yeah, yeah, vaguely. Forest, forest guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So like in the very early days of the US, Teddy Roosevelt had two advisors on sort of natural resources. And it was John Muir and Gifford Pinchot. And they had very different mm. ideas about that. And Pinchot's whole thing was that um, natural resources are basically an economic resource to be managed for the benefit of the, the economy. And he totally won out. And he creates like the whole US forestry service and all of like the initial kind of thinking and talking and everything on on environmental stuff comes from him and he wrote textbooks too the yeah. world is literally our oyster it's it literally mm -hmm. it is composed of resources for us for us <laughs> right that's right it's like that whole dominion thing versus yes, like exactly and yeah yeah and i kind of think that I, I think about that a little bit in the same way i think about racism which is like yes. we've made enough progress that you can't really just say that raw out in the open in public anymore. <laughs> yeah. But if you scratch just a little bit, especially on the right, yeah. it's just right there beneath the surface. I That's mean, right. I, I've had I've had people say it to me straight up on Twitter before, just like whenever I write about species loss, mm -hmm. I get at least one right winger responding, being like, so like, so what? Like, what is the uh, right? We don't need them. <laughs> like, literally, we don't right. need them. If it's not benefiting us and we don't need them, it doesn't matter. Right. It's amazing how close to the surface that still is. But it's super interesting to me in the context of climate stuff, too, because I feel like one of the big missteps of the climate movement for a really long time was to to leave people out entirely. <laughs> like, you, you know, yeah, like, you know, but on the other hand, <laughs> like, given what you're saying earlier, like, it could be that a lot of people talked about people and then some people talked about polar bears and it's just because the environment uh, sort of archetype that's right. in the U.S. head is so strongly associated with that stuff out there that's that that's right. what people heard. That's you know what true. I mean? It's less, less about what true. you say than what people are sort of capable of hearing. Because mm -hmm. yes. I think about this in all sorts of like uh, climate narratives. People are like, oh, we should talk about it in terms of uh, like caring for God's creation or national defense or economic opportunity. And I'm right, like, right, right. we've been like people have been talking about it like that a lot for years now. And yes. it just doesn't get picked up. It's true. It's the military one drives me nuts because I'm like, I know that we've been talking about that for a long time because I remember <laughs> like, getting assigned stories on that like 20 years ago, you know? Yes. And every editor is like, oh, this is a novel thing. It's really going to catch people's <laughs> ear. And it just doesn't because they don't have that archetype. They don't have those sort of stories. That's right. That frame is so rigid in people's minds. And I mean, that we actually found a... Um, 
like a presentation that this guy had been giving to various industry groups about why it was important to get involved in school curricula. And one of the things that he really like hammered home was that like, you need to consistently like restate this framing of environment versus economy and environmentalists as like a special interest group that only cares about pristine nature, which mm. um, <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, it's so, so present today still. Yes, yes. And another thing that all the word drunk liberals yeah. think they're better than is repeating themselves over and over and over again, mm-hmm. which is the sine qua non of effective PR. Oh, literally, And across multiple organizations, this is where I feel like the right really has the left to be, is when you look at like these networks of kind of interconnected foundations and stuff, like yes. you've got like the Bradleys and the Cokes and whatever else, like the messaging is so consistent. They are yes. like military about it. The, the capital is so patient, mm-hmm. right? They just set these organizations up and just let them run in the background, churning this stuff out. Yeah. I ask this all the time. I can list 10 think tanks that are specifically devoted to the wonders of markets and the wonders of free markets. Is there on the left, an organization that is devoted exclusively to propounding the benefits of government? No, not you know, that like I they can all, think of. They all yeah. have their own specific little thing that they want government to do, but who's out there defending, you know, democratic yeah. self-governance through the mechanisms of government? Nobody is telling that story. And yeah, again, it just makes me think of this push as World War II is ending to make sure that Americans embrace free enterprise. Like, where's the counter to that? Yes. Was there like, and they, they, they sort of make up these, like the communists are everywhere, you know, like the socialists are everywhere. And I look around and I'm like, I wish there were some (laughs) socialists. Like, where are they? I never hear from them directly. I only hear about them from you. Like, where are these people? I know. Yeah. Okay. uh, Final question then. I was reading through uh, your Wikipedia page and a couple of like biographies on your publisher's page Mm -hmm. and about halfway through the list of things you're doing and have done, my eyeballs got tired. I had to go take a nap before I read (laughs) the last half of it. What, (laughs) how, what? Because listeners maybe not, do not know that not only do you do, I think three different podcasts, you also are executive producing a bunch of others, you running this podcast network, Mm -hmm. and then also uh, are a uh, parent Mm -hmm. uh, and wrote a book about how ridiculously difficult parenting is. We've made parenting in the modern world. Yeah. It's yeah. and now you're doing this new project and some other new project. I literally was losing count. What <laughs> drugs can you share your drug cocktail? I <laughs> or know. Med, or meditation techniques. Like, what are you doing that is, how do you do this? Well, I think. I think I, someone just asked me this. Someone I work with was like, how, like, do you just not sleep? I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> like two things. One, I actually recently discovered um, only in the last like five years did I realize that this is not how everybody reads, but I have that thing where like, I just like look at a page and absorb all the information on oh, it at right. once. It's very handy. Very handy. Um, and then the other thing is like, I feel like everything I'm working on right now connects to each other. So it sort of seems like it's 10 different things, but it's like kind of mostly one. It's sort of like right. disinformation and power. You know? And it's like, it's like if there was ever a time to do it. You know, yes. Like, 
history is unfolding right in front of us in it some is. scary ways. So it I is. It is. Gonna... Well, and I've been I've been really obsessed for a long time with um with like why America is so uniquely bad on all these fronts mm. too, um, and just just sort of like you know going back to kind of how American individualism was conceptualized and like all of the sort of underpinnings of that are just there. It's yes. just fascinating to me. And so I, I'm, I feel like I'm like, well, I would totally be nerding out on a lot of this stuff, whether <laughs> it was like my job or not. So, so yeah. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for uh, all that you do and for taking uh, so much time today. It's been a delight, a delight. Yeah. It was great to talk to you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. All right. See you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.